Uh, we have a lot going on today, um, and so therefore, uh, I'm going to try to make uh, the message uh, a little briefer than normal. Um, so turn with me to page four in your bulletins. I will uh, read for you, starting from John 16, verses, uh, verse 7. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of God. Uh, So we're continuing in our series, right? We're looking at Jesus' farewell discourse. And if you guys remember, uh, I think it was about a month ago, we looked at Jesus' initial teaching on the Holy Spirit. And here in our text, he picks the topic up again. And the last time we looked at this this topic of the Spirit, we looked at who is the Spirit, the identity of the Spirit, the identity of the Spirit, and we saw that the Spirit is a divine person, that He is one with the Father and the Son, that He is equal to the Father and the Son, He is God, but at the very same time, He is distinct from the Father and the Son, right? That He is, in Jesus' words, another advocate. And today we look at Jesus' teaching now on the work and the ministry of the Spirit, and Jesus shows us three things, and here's my outline. Jesus shows us the absolute necessity of the Spirit's coming. Number two, Jesus shows us uh, the Spirit convicting the world. And then number three, the Spirit glorifying the Son. Okay? So let's start. Number one, uh, the Spirit, uh, the coming of the Spirit. Look with me to uh, the very beginning of the passage, verse 7. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. And some of you are saying, that's odd. Uh, Jesus, were you playing fast and loose with the truth before and only now you're getting serious? No, this is a figure of speech. Uh, Jesus is telling his disciples, I want you to pay attention to what I'm about to say. I want to draw your attention. Listen very carefully. And Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. It is better for you. It is for your benefit that I go away. And that is an astonishing statement. Why? Because Remember that the disciples are grieved. I mean, imagine the disciples' uh, distress, right? The disciples have been with Jesus now for three years. And finally, finally, they're in Jerusalem, and they're going to confront the powers that be, and, and their expectation is that Jesus is going to put an end, finally, to injustice, to sin, and to death, that all the prophecies in the Old Testament are going to finally come true. This is the culmination, the climax of everything they've been hoping for, working towards. And then Jesus says, I'm going away. It's like uh, the captain 
turning to his troops right before he leads them into battle, and he says, go on without me. I'm not going to join you. And so imagine his disciples' enormous distress, but Jesus says, it is for your benefit, because when I leave, the Spirit will come. And we looked at this the last time, right? That when you have the Spirit, because the Spirit and Jesus are so one, you have Jesus. And now Jesus tells us, not only do you have me, but you have me to a greater extent, to an even greater degree, that without the Spirit, in a very real sense, you don't really have Jesus. You're not really hearing him. You're not really seeing Jesus. What do I mean by this? Well, we often think, right, if only I had been there. If only I had seen and heard Uh, then my faith would be so strong. My commitment to Jesus would be unwavering. If only I had seen the miracles. With my own eyes, if only I could have seen Jesus walk on the water. If only I could have seen Jesus feed 5,000 people from a small basket of food. If only I could have eaten the food. You know, or if only I could have seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. If I could have been there at the tomb as they rolled the stone away and I smelled the decaying, putrefying body of Lazarus and then Jesus calls Lazarus out to new life. If I had seen that, if I had been there, my faith would be so strong. If only I could have been in the crowds listening to Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount, then I would believe. But is that true? Think about all the people who were really there and who saw the miracles and who heard Jesus preach. Nevertheless, they rejected Jesus. And you might say, well, you know, that was, uh, that was only the Pharisees. Right? And we have this image of the Pharisees that they were these group of very grumpy, dour, narrow-minded religious folk. And of course they rejected Jesus. Of course they hated Jesus, but not the common people. You know, not the people. They loved Jesus, right? We, we have this picture. But who was it that cried out in the crowd, crucify him, crucify him? Release to us the criminal Barabbas, but crucify Jesus of, La- of Nazareth. All the Gospels uniformly tell us that it was the entire city. It wasn't just the religious scribes. It was the common people. They cried out for his death. And then you might say, okay, okay. The people rejected Jesus, but that's because they didn't have the inner access like the disciples. You know, they might have seen one or two miracles. They might have heard Jesus preach once or twice, but maybe that wasn't enough. Not like the disciples, right? The disciples were there the whole time. They heard every one of Jesus' teachings. They saw all of the miracles. They were there on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was glorified, right? But what does the Bible tell us? It tells us that every single one of the disciples betrayed and abandoned Jesus in the end. That not a single disciple stayed true to Jesus. Why is that? The Bible tells us that it is not enough to see and to hear and to, and to witness the miracles And so let's not kid ourselves that had we been there, we would have faith. The miracles are not enough. We cannot say, if only I saw the miracles, if only I heard him preach, I would believe. And here's the reason why. 
It's because it's not a matter, the Bible tells us, it's not a matter, faith is not a matter of merely information. It's not a matter of seeing the evidence. It's not like the more evidence you see, the greater your faith. Rather, the Bible tells us, we refuse to believe in the face of the evidence. We can't believe, we can't accept. Why? Because we have a stake in the matter. It's not a neutral thing, right? We have a conflict of interest. Why? Because if Jesus is who he really says he is, what does that mean? That means he is divine. He is the only Savior. And that means we owe him our entire lives. That means we need to recenter everything about ourselves around him. But we don't want that, right? We want to live our lives as if it is our own. And so therefore, we're prejudiced against the data. We're predisposed to not believe. Why? Because the truth is too painful for us to accept. The truth is too uncomfortable, too disruptive for us to believe. One of my favorite uh, radio shows is uh, called This American Life. And uh, I think I've shared this before, right? It's a great radio show. It looks at these human interest stories. And about a month ago, uh, there was uh, this story fascinating, such an absorbing story about uh, this Italian-American family called the Palladinos. And the Palladinos is like your typical family. There's your mom and dad, three kids, one son, two daughters, except there's one small oddity, one small anomaly in the family. The son is African-American. The son is black, right? And and his family is white. And And so this is how the story of how it came about. The mother, when she was in high school, was dating two guys simultaneously. One guy was David Palladino, Italian-American kid. But the other guy was this African-American classmate, this black person. And she was dating both of them at the same time without letting them know what was going on. And she was physically intimate with both of them. And it came to be that one day she went to the doctor and the shock of her life, she found out she was pregnant. And the thought that immediately came to her mind is, oh no, who is the father? Who is the father? She had no idea. And so she went home and she's just in utter distress, you know? Who is the father? Not only that, she's pregnant and she can't keep the secret to herself, so she has to let her parents know. And the thing is, her parents were very conservative, very traditional, so she knew this. They would be outraged. They would be crazy mad if they found out that A, she was dating a black guy, and B, he could be the father of their grandchild. So she knew one thing, and which is that there was no way she could tell them about that. So she told them, it's David Palladino. And so the two families got together and there was a shotgun wedding. And then now it's the day of the birth. And this woman is just nervous. She's crazy with fear. Because, you know, most women, they're going through the agony of physical birth. And, you know, that's painful by itself. But this thought kept running through her head, this fear. What if, what if she gives birth and everyone's there and it's a black baby? How is she going to explain this to her husband, who doesn't know still, by the way? How is she going to explain this to her family? And so she's just praying to God fervently, please, God, please, let the baby be white. Let the baby be David Palladino's baby. 
And so the moment of truth comes. She gives birth. The doctors place the baby in her arms. She takes a deep breath. She looks down and breathes a sigh of relief because the baby is white. The baby is white. I mean, there's a little bit of color, but, you know, she's Italian. David is Italian. So, of course, you know, there's going to be a little bit of color. But the baby is white. And so she's just so relieved. They named the baby David Palladino Jr. And they take him home. And they're just so happy and so relieved. And she's just so convinced. She's just so assured this is David's son. Everything goes well for the first couple of months. And then slowly, bit by bit, the baby starts to turn darker. And day by day, he gets darker and darker. And by the time the baby is a toddler, he looks full-on African-American. And it becomes incredibly awkward so that whenever her and her husband would take the baby out, you know, people would come up to them, like maybe at the grocery market, and they would say, you know, this is so great. You guys are so loving that you would adopt this black kid into your family. And the parents would become incredibly indignant. They would say, no, 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 this is our baby. They're like, yes, yes, we know. No, 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 this is our baby, you know. And of course, the questions continued. And people would, you know, people would wonder. And so they came up with this explanation. They said, well, you know, we're both Italian. In fact, they were both from the south of Italy. And if you know a little bit about the region, uh, over the centuries, uh, Italy endured these invasions from Africa, right, from the north of Africa. And so they said, well, you know, maybe these black Moors came up and maybe they sort of intermingled with the population and somehow their blood entered the gene pool. And, uh, and uh, you know, sometimes because it's these recessive genes, and every once in a while, two Italians will marry, and then these genes will be expressed, and then, you know, the kid will look black. And so that was the story they told themselves, but it became increasingly difficult to maintain that because they had two more kids, two daughters, and they were blonde and pale white. But still they maintained, this is our baby, this is our baby. And on it went through elementary school, junior high, high school, college. David Palladino Jr. would go to college and people would immediately assume, oh, you're African-American. Hey, brother, welcome. He'd be like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm Italian-American. I'm, I'm white. And so he would like join Italian-American heritage clubs. He would wear t-shirts, proud to be an Italian-American. And on it went, finally, late into his 20s, when he was nearly 30 years old, the truth broke out. And the mother finally admitted that her son was not the result of her union with her husband, but from her relationship all the way back when she was in high school with her black boyfriend. And the interview, it was such a fascinating story. I, mean, I was listening to this while I was in the car, and you know, when you're listening sometimes, you get to your destination, so you just there and keep listening. It was such a fascinating story. And the interviewer kept asking the mother, how is it? That in the face of obvious evidence, I mean, you saw your son every day, you could deny the truth. I mean, the interviewer said, if you look at a family portrait, right, it is so patently obvious that the kid is African-American. He's in a white family. And, the, and the, this is the answer the mother gave. The mother said this, you have to understand that the truth was too painful to admit that she couldn't tell her husband, she couldn't tell her children, she couldn't even admit it to herself. That she had painted this picture in her, in her mind of her perfect family. And to admit that her son was not a part of this family, you know, biologically, it was just too painful, too disruptive. 
And when I heard her, her story, it's the perfect picture of our relationship with God. R.C. Sproul, who is a famous theologian, said that uh, the sinner seeks God the same way the thief seeks the policeman, which is that they don't, right? It's too painful. You, you can't admit it to yourself. And so Jesus tells his disciples, it's not enough to see, and to, to see the miracles, to hear my words. There's something lacking because your hearts are corrupted, your hearts are broken, and therefore you need something else. And therefore it is to your benefit that I leave because when I leave, then you will have the Spirit and the Spirit will provide what is lacking in your faith. So what, is the, what does the Spirit supply? And this leads me to my second point, which is that the Spirit convicts the world. Look with me to uh, verse 8. How does the Spirit put us in this better place? Jesus says, When the Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now that word that's translated convict is actually a legal word. It's a word that you would find used in a courtroom. And uh, in a very narrow sense, it actually means to cross-examine a witness. It means to show someone their fault. And that, you might say, is a, a bit unusual, right? Because if you remember, we looked at this uh, passage on the Spirit before, a few weeks back. Jesus uses a word in the Greek, paraclete, to describe the Spirit. And here in the ESV, it's translated helper. In other translations, it's rendered comforter, counselor. And, and the reason why there's all these different translations is because it's kind of a word that you really can't capture with a single translation. The best translation, I think, is legal advocate. And the image Jesus is giving us is that we are defendants in the heavenly court. And the Spirit comes alongside of us as our legal advocate, and He defends us. He comforts us. He counsels us. And now Jesus says... He adds this one other thing, and the Spirit, as our legal advocate, puts us on the witness stand, cross-examines us, and shows us our guilt. And you might say, well, that's a very strange thing for our legal advocate to do, but that's what the Spirit does. He has these dual roles. He assures us of the love of God, and He exposes our sins. He cuts us to the heart. And that is exactly what we need. That is what's lacking in our faith. We don't need more information. We don't need to see more of the evidence. We need to be cut to the heart. We need the truth of the gospel to be driven into our hearts. Just to share my own story, uh, I grew up in the church. And uh, I was one of those kids that was so eager to show off how much I knew about the Bible. Do you know one of those? Do you know, do you know who I'm talking about? Um, and I remember my church would have these biannual Bible quizzes. And uh, they would sort of ask questions about Bible stories, Bible verses. And they would award, I kid you not, they would award first, second, third place with like a ribbon. And so every year, every, 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 twice a year, I would win first place. And I remember this one year, I think I was in the fifth grade, um, this new kid came. And this new kid knew a lot. 
And he edged me out, and he won first place. And oh, I was so livid. I was so mad. And it made me so determined. I studied the scriptures. I memorized Bible verses. I reviewed all the stories. And next time, I was ready. And I got first place. But even though I knew the Bible so well, relatively speaking, as a young kid, I was not a Christian. It was all just head knowledge, you know? It was all just abstract truth. And then I remember when I was in junior high, one day I went to a retreat, and the preacher was up there, and he was explaining the gospel. And it was something that I had heard, really, hundreds and hundreds of times before. But as the preacher was standing there explaining what sin is, all of a sudden it dawned on me, it struck me, that when the Bible talks about sin, it's not talking about sin out there. It's not talking about, you know, sin that evil people do. But it's talking about my sin. That even though on the surface I look like a good kid, and I was a relatively good kid, yet I lived completely and only for myself, just absolutely selfishly, selfishly, without regard to God. And I saw just the evil of that and the horror of that and how much I deserved judgment and condemnation. And when the preacher started to talk about salvation in Christ, right, that Jesus Christ sacrificed himself because of his love for me so that I could have new life, so that I could be saved, it touched me, you know. It just impacted me. And I was sitting there and, you know, the tears were rolling down my cheeks and I was just so moved by the beauty of salvation. And I thought, wow, this is such a great message. You know, everyone must be moved. I looked around and no one else was crying. You know, everyone else had this same kind of bored, glazed look that uh, I guess we normally always had. That was the spirit. It wasn't that the preacher was unusually eloquent that day, but that the Spirit was driving home the truth of the gospel to my heart so that I could see for the first time the reality of salvation, the truth of the gospel, the beauty of Christ. How do I explain the work of the Spirit? <laughs> Let me put it another way. Okay? Imagine this scenario. You have a blind friend. And your blind friend comes to you and says, what does red look like? What does the color red look like? And you're like, well, I could give you a scientific explanation. I could say, well, there's something called the electromagnetic spectrum. And the human eye could only perceive a narrow band of that. And so when wavelengths hit your eye at 700 nanometers, your brain interprets that as redness. Is that accurate? Absolutely. That's true. That's factual. But is that enough to convey to the bl your blind friend redness? Absolutely not. How do you explain to someone who is blind the beauty of a sunset? You know, when this, the colors of the sun saturate the sky and, and there's purple, red, and orange just all over, how do you convey that you cannot unless your friend can see? And that's the same way with the Spirit. It's not enough to know. You have to know, know. Do you know what I'm saying? You have to experience. You have to see the beauty of the, of, of the gospel. You have to taste its goodness. You see, what's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Is it that the Christian knows the facts of the gospel and the non-Christian doesn't? No. 
Is it even that the Christian agrees with the facts of the gospel and the non-Christian doesn't agree? No. The difference is that the Christian is under the conviction of the Spirit that the truth of the gospel, the glory of Christ, the majesty of salvation, the horror of their sins is real to them. They feel it. They experience They know it to be the case. The eyes of their hearts have been opened. Now I want to give you one application and uh, because I'm trying to make the sermon a little bit short, I'm going to say this very quickly, okay? How does this affect our lives? Why do we as Christians struggle? Why do we give in to temptations? Because at that moment, when we're faced with a choice, whatever it is, whatever sin is enticing you, right, to give in to your anxieties, to give in to your greed, to your lust, to your jealousies, to your anger, whatever it is, at that moment, that sin is more beautiful and more pleasant and more comforting and more real to you than the beauty and the love and the truth of Christ. And so how do you put to death sin in your life? The Spirit has to convict you. And so how do you have the conviction of the Spirit? Well, you need to cultivate a life in the Spirit. You need to keep in step with the Spirit. And you can say, well, how do you do that? And this is the same thing that I say, I feel like, almost every week, which is, you need to do the disciplines of grace. You need to read the Bible, pray, fast, enjoy Christian fellowship, uh, tithe regularly. And these are the things that, that cultivate life in the Spirit. All right, so that's the second point. Let's move on to the third point. This will be relatively brief. The other thing that the Spirit does is the Spirit glorifies the Son. And look, let's look at what Jesus says starting in verse 13. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will... Okay. Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see, the mission of the Spirit is not to draw attention to Himself, but it's to draw our attention to Christ so that we focus on Christ. And here, I think, is where our charismatic brothers and sisters, and I call them brothers and sisters, have, I think, the wrong emphasis because there is a tendency among Pentecostals and, 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 and charismatics to so focus on the Spirit that they are glorifying the Spirit. But that's not the mission. That's not the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is like a spotlight on a building. Have you guys ever gone into the city at nighttime? And, you know, and there are certain buildings, right, where it has spotlights trained on it, right? And the spotlights are kind of hidden in the shrubbery. And is the point of the spotlight that the pedestrians walk by and say, oh, look at the spotlight? No. The point is for the pedestrians to look up and say, wow, look at the building." Look at how ornate and amazing it is. And that's exactly what the Spirit does. The Spirit shines a spotlight on Jesus Christ. He glorifies the Son. Now, let's apply this. 
And this, and, and this will be uh, how we close. All right, let's apply this. I want you to notice the selflessness of the triune God. I want you to notice the selflessness of the triune God. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by God's selflessness? Here you have Jesus emptying himself of his glory, taking on the role of a servant, and dying on the cross for our sins. And then here you have the Spirit not speaking of his own glory, but only glorifying Jesus. There must be something deep in the heart of God that is so radically other-centered that I want you to notice the selflessness of God here, right? There's something deep in the heart of God that says, my life for yours. Not my interests, but your interests. Because here you have Jesus emptying himself of his glory, and then here you have the Spirit only glorifying Jesus. So what does that mean for us? Here's the application. Are you always promoting yourself? Do you always feel snubbed? Do you always feel like you're not getting your due, your credit, that people aren't noticing you? If you want to follow after the life of God, you need to lay aside your interests and your glory and put the interests and benefit of others ahead of your own. You need to take on the role of the servant. And I want to get really practical here. You know, let's talk about Indelible Grace Church. There are so many different tasks and jobs in the church. And some jobs, you know, are kind of like the glory jobs, right? They get all the attention. They get all the, att- they get all the thanks. They get all the uh, praise. And then there are some jobs that nobody wants to do. There are the jobs that are kind of lowly, They're the jobs that the servants would do. They're the jobs that no one thanks, no one pays attention to. Are you willing to take on those jobs? Are you willing to do those things that a servant would do? Or not even in this church. What about at work? Or what about in your family? Are you willing to humble yourself and to give your life, not my own, but for for others? And so, in closing, what do we see here in the Spirit? It shows us that we need to get rid of our pride. We need to stop putting our interests as our central focus, and we need to think of others. We need to be like the one who lives within us, the paraclete, the other advocate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the Spirit. We absolutely confess to you that without the Spirit, we would be lost our hearts would be hardened against you because the truth is too painful. But Lord, you softened our hearts. You called us to yourself. And Lord, we pray that we would walk in step with the Spirit. We would cultivate a life in the Spirit. And that would utterly humble us and that would make us radically in love with you and worshipful of you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.